There is power in the Himalayas' many mountaintops. They are purpose-made stone, offering paths to realization and a sense of profound achievement of strength, determination, and will at their tops. Mountains have long served as endpoints of pilgrimages. To Mount Everest straddling the Nepal-China border, to Mount Kailash on the Tibetan Plateau, and to Mount Meru in the Indian Himalayas, often called the navel of the universe. Summits offer perspective, a chance to look back down at your footprints with clarity. Yet for every mountain, there is a valley residing below. If the expanse of a desert humbles and the restriction of a forest disorientates, the intimacy of a valley comforts, providing tranquility and a shield from the forces of exposure. In valleys, thoughts don't float away across an ocean or a plain, never to return. They remain to be incubated. Around the world, seekers climb mountains to achieve that clarity or to be closer to their gods. But it is the valleys below in which their intentions solidify and from which they take their first steps. In these sanctuaries, pilgrims can bask in the possibility of what lies ahead and above. That was Canadian journalist Harley Rustad reading from his book Lost in the Valley of Death, a story of obsession and danger in the Himalayas. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. Lost in the Valley of Death is the nonfiction account of the peripatetic life and the sad end of Justin Alexander Shetler, an American who disappeared in India in 2016. Shetler was described by friends as a bit of a lost boy. Someone who tried on a string of identities, mountain man, masseuse, rock star, and tech executive. And he never seemed to have a real home, traveling by motorcycle and foot across the U.S., Thailand, and finally, the remote Parvati Valley of India. Justin, who was 35 at the time he vanished, saw himself firmly in the tradition of a mystic and a seeker. In his short life, he tried on Christianity, Native American spirituality, Buddhism, and Hinduism. Eventually, he took his mother's advice to find his own truth. It was a quest from which he never returned. I could not put the book down. I spoke with Rustad from his home in Toronto, where he is a contributing editor for the magazine The Walrus. Harley, Tell us a little bit about Justin Alexander and how you first came across his story. Unlike a lot of tourists and travelers who visit India, he had a very clear direction and motivation and goal in mind for this trip to India, which was to go to the Himalayas essentially as fast as possible to find this small corner of the mountains, of these sacred mountains, and spend a lot of time there to find a cave, one of these these sites that throughout history have been places of transformation and have a 
revelatory moment. Three years before, he had quit his job at this tech company, gave away most of his belongings, and embarked along on this long journey across the US and then eventually abroad. When Justin arrived in India, he found his way to the mountains and to this one tiny corner of the Himalayas called the Parvati Valley. And there he found exactly what he was looking for. And his time there culminated in living in a cave for almost a month, very isolated, testing himself both physically and mentally, and then embarking on a pilgrimage with a sadhu, a a Hindu holy man, to the glacial source of the Holy Parvati River, which is where Justin ultimately, tragically vanished. Justin was well prepared for outdoor physical adventures. He didn't go to high school. He went to wilderness school and he trained in all these extreme wilderness adventures, survivalism and sport. Tell us a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. He withdrew from high school and entered into this place called the Wilderness Awareness School, which is up in the conifer forests of Washington state. And it's an offshoot of a school based in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey called the Tracker School, this legendary wilderness survival school. And Justin became the protege of this main leader from this legendary tracker uh, from the New Jersey school. And he was somebody who was so accomplished and so skilled, he could do whatever he wanted at the school, dip in and out of classes. He taught the young students and emerged as somebody who was not only proficient, but committed. He could start a fire with, you know, a bow drill in 15 seconds, you know, faster than than I could with a lighter and paper, almost kind of a freak of nature with the things he could do, but so deeply committed to learning these skills, these, these really tangible ways to not only survive, building shelters, starting fires, you know, catching animals, all that kind of stuff, but also the more philosophical and spiritual connections to nature and to the planet. At those schools, it was really deeply rooted in Native American traditions. And he deeply, deeply identified with some of those traditions and found solace, his deepest connection, when he's out completely by himself in the forest, up the mountain, really doing some introspection, but also deeply pushing himself physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally Part of pushing himself included making deep dives into different religions and spiritual traditions. Here's Harley on Justin's spiritual wanderings. Like many of his generation, Justin was searching for spiritual expressions that resonated with him personally, cobbling together morals, teachings, and elements of various faiths to form his own. In many ways, he fit into the 21st century surge of believers who consider themselves spiritual rather than religious. Truth is the one word that many who knew him used to describe the goal of Justin's longtime quest. He often spoke of his path to truth when describing what he sought in life. He acknowledged that at the base of religion, there was a kernel of real truth, but in his view, spirituality was simple. It was seeking the connection that existed between people and with the world around us. As his mother had often told him, all he had to do was find his own truth. So he's trained to survive 
in the wilderness, but he's living in a world where we don't need to do that anymore. He had a job as a waiter. He trained in massage therapy. You say he even had a couple of shifts as a stripper. And then suddenly he finds himself as an executive in a startup company and traveling all around the world and making huge amounts of money. Along the way, it seems everywhere he went, somebody was there to say, oh my gosh, this guy's so great, I must bring him into my realm. What was it about Justin that made him so charismatic that all these people he bumped up to in all these different realms of his life wanted to take care of him, remembered him, wanted to hire him. He he just show he's like a like Zelig in that way. He shows up everywhere. Mm. There are these certain people that walk this earth that are like magnets and people are drawn to them and they they almost kind of radiate. They have this kind of aura. And this one thing that one commonality that a lot of people mentioned was that when you were sitting down with him one on one, it felt like you were the most important person to Justin in that moment. He was so present with you. He was so interested in who you are and your story. Even though if you go on his Instagram account, which is still present, it's still active today, you may easily write him off as somebody who, you know, takes his shirt off too easily or is posing or is a little arrogant. The people who knew him and crossed paths with him knew him as somebody who was very gentle, very kind, but so present and so almost in desperate need of that intimate connection with people. It was clear that there was a, not only a kind of curiosity at the root of that to try to figure out where he fit in this world, but also a kind of deep dissatisfaction with the things that he tried. And he was somebody who who did these things to the fullest you know he he did become a quite successful you know lead singer and songwriter for a band based out of San Francisco and he did become very successful in a tech startup in Miami and that really spoke to his devotion to these things that he could shift he was a bit of a chameleon whatever circumstance you put him in he would change his colors and put on a fancy Armani suit and then 2 months later be you know, training a Marine Corps uh, group in survival techniques. Yes. And to me, that was fascinating. But I also sort of came to see it as, as quite sad in some ways that he never quite found his full expression uh, as, a, as a person, as a human, and really, but really, really tried to, to find that and to achieve that. People who only knew him through Instagram, longtime friends and, and new travel acquaintances, and every single one of them, when I messaged them or reached out to them, would say, oh, I remember him. At the same time, one of the themes of Justin's life is constantly being alone. He wanted to be alone. The last thing he wanted to do was to go to one of the most remote valleys in the world, find a cave, and live in it alone. He did not have any major romance relationships in his life. He was an only child, and while he had all these people who felt close to him, he had a, quote, community 
They were a social media community. I found that really paradoxical about him. Was there anything about him spiritually that drove him to be alone? Did he need isolation and aloneness to fulfill his spirit? Hmm. I think I think he did. You know, he had a lot of very challenging early relationships with his family and with his close friends when he was a teenager. And because he bounced around so often, a lot of those friendships were fleeting and inconsistent. And that was a current that continued throughout his life. And at times, he would throw himself into these communities and have tons of friends. When he was in in San Francisco, he had this enormous, wonderful community. And then on social media, it was this you know, very disparate, fragmented community of people who bounce in and bounce out of your life and feeding you uh, these comment and satisfaction and all these things that, that can come from social media that can be wonderful, but that can also have a dark side, was somebody that knew that his greatest expression has most often come in his life when he was alone in the mountains or in the forest, and yet was torn, yet he wanted the connection. He he desperately wanted a relationship, even though he he knew he could never really maintain one that fit with this life of perpetual seeking and, and constantly on the road. So it was always this balance and this struggle and this paradox between somebody who deeply wanted relationships and friendships and connection to something bigger, but also knew that throughout history, some of the greatest thinkers, some of the greatest spiritual leaders have had their moment of isolation, of solitude, on the mountain, under the tree, by the riverbank, that have given them their greatest revelation. And I think that was ultimately what constantly pushed Justin, was this seeking for that moment. And I think Justin always saw that, always saw that he just had to push himself a little bit further. He just had to isolate himself for a little bit longer. And the tragedy in the story is that at the end, his story ended in darkness. Harley, you first wrote about Justin for the magazine Outside. How did you first hear about him and his story? I had been to India a couple times before. I'd spent almost two years there. And I had heard about the Parvati Valley as this place of incredible beauty, you know, big mountain vistas, these holy rivers, little villages clinging to the mountainside, temples, the mist that rolls in, the rain that hits it. And, but also as this place of, with a very dark history. And the Parvati Valley has had this reputation as a place where people have disappeared almost once a year, going back to the early 90s. I kept in touch with Indian media over the years, and I came across this one story in in the fall of 2016 about this American man named Justin who had been living in a cave and, and was the latest person to disappear in this valley with this long, dark, tragic history. I knew that there was an important story to be told in his life. My guest is Harley Rustad, a Canadian journalist who is the author of Lost in the Valley of Death, a story of obsession and danger in the Himalayas. When we come back, we'll place Justin Alexander Shetler in the long history of young white men who embark on dangerous spiritual quests in the wilderness and fail to come back. Stay with us. 
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your host this week, Kimberly Winston, sitting in for Ambreen Khan. We've been speaking with Harley Rustad, author of Lost in the Valley of Death, a book at the top of my summer reading list. It's about a young American man named Justin Alexander Shetler, who disappeared on a spiritual quest to India in 2016. His last adventure was to the spectacularly beautiful but dangerously remote Parvati Valley, a gateway to the mystic reaches of the Himalayas. It was there that Justin found a sadhu, a sort of wandering Hindu holy man. Justin spoke no Hindi, and the holy man spoke no English. And yet, after only a brief acquaintance, Justin persuaded the sadhu to take him on a perilous hike to a remote and sacred lake. Here's a section from Harley's book, where he's quoting from a social media post Justin composed just before the trip. Some caves are inhabited by sadhus, eccentric, mostly naked Indian men living in the wild, who follow an ancient, mystical, yogic tradition. They meditate in caves for months or years at a time, smoking Indian pipes of the world's finest hashish and renouncing the world in search of enlightenment. I plan on doing my own version of that, and it's something I've been called to do for years now. Not to renounce the world or become enlightened, but to wander alone in these majestic Himalayas, eat from the land, drink straight from the rivers, sleep in caves, meditate and play my flute to the mountains, to be human. P.S. If I get in trouble or begin to starve, I can hike down to a village and get help or eat. I won't die. I asked Rustad if he thinks Justin was running to or running away from something when he found the sadhu who changed his life. There was definitely things that he was running away from, no question. There was a period of his life when he was a young boy and a teenager that was deeply traumatic and tragic. And I think a lot of these steps that he took were 
a way to get as far away as he can from that. And in, so in that case, I think he was running from his past, his history, from these complicated relationships and from some of the things that he endured as a young kid. But I think he also quite powerfully was running towards something that he felt would change his life. And in that moment that we sometimes all want when we go traveling, which is to be changed, to be transformed, to come back as a better person, to have learned something. Those are all simple versions of, I think, what Justin ultimately sought. But I think he wanted that, that moment, was absolutely running towards the mountaintop, the metaphorical mountaintop, where he could climb as high as he possibly could. And there at the top, he would be able to see where he came from and where he was going. Both of those forces, I think, expressed themselves at different times in his life. And I think both of those forces appeared in the Parvati Valley in India in those final months. So when Justin gets to the Parvati Valley, he finds the cave that he wants to live in. And not long after he arrives, he picks up or attaches himself to a guru. And the guru's name is Satnarayan Rawat. Tell us a little bit about Satnarayan Rawat. So Justin met uh, this sadhu, this, this Hindu holy man, who are people who've essentially given up all their worldly possessions and embarked on this very austere, very ascetic uh, journey towards moksha, towards, <clears throat> towards enlightenment. And Justin met him very early in his time in the Parvati Valley. And because Justin posted about this on social media, there's this whole record of their encounter and their relationship over these weeks that Justin was living in his cave. And he became kind of a mentor to Justin. And it was very clear that Justin saw something in Rawat that, that he felt that he could learn something from this, this sort of wise old mystic who had embarked upon this very austere and very devoted spiritual path. And it was clear that Justin idolized that in, to some degree. And they developed this quite close, you know, as close as you can to somebody who doesn't speak a lot of Hindi or doesn't speak a lot of English relationship of essentially a guru and a chela. And a chela is a, not necessarily a servant, but a, a, a disciple of, of that guru who would perform uh, actions for him or ha- kind of help him in exchange for mentorship and for, for teaching. Justin very clearly became enamored with him. And they, as their relationship progressed, this sadhu invited him on a pilgrimage to the highest point in the valley, this holy lake called Mantalai Lake. Their plan was to spend weeks there, meditating, um, you know, sleeping out under the stars as this you know, for Justin and what I've said before as this kind of final journey to hopefully achieve what he's always wanted to achieve. That was the final fateful journey. One man returned and one man did not. Justin often seemed to have the need for some sort of a guru, uh, whether it was Stalking Wolf or some of the other folks that he met in wilderness school. Um, You even see it in the books that you say he read or he carried with him. Uh, He was a big devotee of Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces. He carried Siddhartha. I love that you 
say that he didn't particularly like Jack Kerouac's On the Road because, of course, Kerouac never needed anybody. But you also talk about there being a, a dangerous side to picking up an itinerant guru in India. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You're absolutely right. Justin was somebody who always had these complicated relationships with father figures. Um, going back to his own father, this very off and on again fraught relationship. And he always sought out these father figures at the Wilderness Awareness Schools to mentor under or study under and idolize. And that continued throughout his life. And in India has this long history of people going there searching for their guru that goes back, you know, centuries. You know, Steve Jobs went there long before he founded Apple in search of a guru and had this hugely transformative experience. The Beatles went there following a guru uh, that George Harrison was enamored with and, you know, write, wrote some crazy music in Rishikesh and, and weaned themselves off LSD. What is challenging is that that relationship is ultimately one based on power. One person has the knowledge and one person is desperate for that knowledge. And in some cases, that can be a beautiful thing. It can end up in a wonderful exchange of experiences and understanding. But it's also one that can prove deeply dark and deeply troublesome, where one person knows that they have control over their disciple and can encourage them or push them to do things or to extremes that they would never do otherwise. And I think for Justin, who had a pretty good head on his shoulders, he also had a blind spot, and that was trust. He deeply, in some ways, wonderfully wanted to trust people, see the good in people, whoever they were. And at times, that was great. But at other times, it ended up in some very dangerous circumstances throughout his life. And in the end, you know, the man, the sadhu who he did meet... There are many questions as to what happened up in, in the valley on the way to this holy lake. And ultimately, that relationship was broken. So there's this whole theme uh, among young white men from Western civilization who seem to have this absolute need to engage in risky behavior that really could end their lives. Uh, I'm thinking of Christopher McCandless, uh, the young man who was the subject of John Krakauer's book Into the Wild and the film of the same name. Um, I'm thinking of Rob Hall, who died on Everest and was um, uh, another subject of a, a John Krakauer book. And I'm thinking of various free solo climbers who leap off El Capitan in Yosemite and sometimes die. Uh, there's this wonderful passage in Into the Wild where Krakauer takes a break from talking about McCandless and says, I know this feeling. I know this drive to push yourself very close to death. And I'm like, what is the lure of this type of behavior? Because it seems so primal for many of these young men. Does it have a spiritual aspect to it? You're, I mean, I think you're totally right. And I think there's a lot of factors at play um, that almost kind of come together for some young men as kind of a perfect storm. And there's definitely a level of entitlement that they can achieve anything as long as they try hard enough, as long as they push themselves hard enough. 
I think there's a restlessness of, you know, a lot of generations, definitely McCandless's generation, definitely um, Justin's generation. And I think still today, an almost kind of backlash against mundanity and conformity that makes them feel that there's this desire to live a life of great adventure and great deed and great importance. We all maybe identify with that in some degree. We all want to leave our mark on the world. But I think that push in some young men, coupled with entitlement and you know, no small measure of overconfidence and hubris sometimes, you know, that kind of whatever adventure, whatever trial can be endured and overcome that all of that kind of comes together to be this incredible wind at their backs. And I think there is something perhaps lacking in some people's lives. There's so many people who are moving away from organized religion and now identifying as spiritual in whatever kind of form that may be. And I think in that wake, for a lot of people, it's this whole of uncertainty. It's this whole of of where do I fit into something bigger than myself? And to fill that hole takes a lot. In the absence of kind of pure faith in something, you need to fill that with experiences, with risk, with extremes, with, with sensation. And I think in that, through that lens, you can see that throughout history, going back to Christopher McCandless and Everett Ruiz in the 1930s who, who disappeared in the American Southwest and a number of, of young men, of which, you know, Justin is, is the latest in this long history. There was a deep hole. There was this deep uncertainty that, and they all kind of had the privilege to be able to see it through that some, some people don't. Some people have these questions, but don't have the capability or the, the privilege to be able to step out that door initially and quit your job and go traveling indefinitely. And so that search continues. It's almost a search without end because the higher you go, there will always be another cloud-covered peak that you can't quite reach or that is just on the horizon. I want to ask you, what do you think is the moral of Justin's life? Hmm. As a reporter and as a writer, I can often be quite distant from subjects. And there's almost kind of rules in place that you should not, you know, get too close to your subjects. And, and obviously, I never spoke with Justin. I never met him. And at the beginning, I didn't know who he was. And I fell down the rabbit hole of his social media accounts and I talked with his family and I talked with his close friends. And then I extended my net wider and I traveled to India twice to interview all these people, some of the last people to see him alive. Maybe the moral or at least my, my takeaway, something that really has resonated with me throughout working on this story and, and still does today, is this never-ending desire to that we may that we all have different paths to try to find out who we are and how we fit into, into life or the world or to mother nature or to the cosmos. And I think the, the moral, if there is one, is to never stop walking, is to never, in your own way, to never stop exploring, whether that's the world out there or internally, is to maintain this, this deep, wonderful curiosity 
about other people, about other places, and about how we kind of all fit together into something bigger. And that, to me, I'll always keep with me. And it's been wonderful to hear feedback from people who have connected with something similar. That even beyond his life, he continues to still inspire people to do that. To be curious, to step out of your door, to try something. Maybe not push yourself quite as far as he did in some cases, but to push yourself. And I think that's a really wonderful legacy to, to leave behind. That was Harley Rustad, a Canadian journalist and author of Lost in the Valley of Death, a story of obsession and danger in the Himalayas. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. In 2016, we handed over the mic to former NPR religion correspondent Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Barbara had just written a book exploring what is commonly called a midlife crisis, that point at which people may look backward more than forward and question their most pivotal choices and deeply held beliefs. Not that I would know anything about this personally, but it's a time when some people freak out. But as Barbara told us, a midlife crisis can also be a time of renewal, including of one's spirituality. Here she is on how to revive a barely flickering prayer life. Let me just ask you, what are some of the adjectives that you would use to describe how this feels? Can you just list a few? Well, I would say... Dry, empty, listless, nothing, <laughs> bored, arid. There's not a lot going on. You sit down in your prayer chair and you, you know, light a candle or something and you close your eyes and you're waiting for something. You're waiting for an emotion or you're waiting to be drawn to a particular passage or to be inspired or to, I love this. Then you open your eyes and nothing happens. <laughs> We all hear about the midlife crisis, that sense of boredom or flatness, or sometimes an existential despair that this is as good as it gets, and the only way to feel young again is to trade in your spouse or your car for a newer model. At least, that's how the cultural stereotype goes. But what about mid-faith crisis, that feeling that somewhere along your spiritual journey, God just disappeared, leaving you in a spiritual desert, maybe even in a dark night of the soul? And sometimes the remedy can feel similar, to want a new spiritual life, to be born again and again and again, in an attempt to recapture the spiritual honeymoon. 
That's what we'll talk about today with two people who have suffered through spiritual dryness, have thought about why we have it, and how to cope with it. Kathleen Norris wrote a book on the phenomenon called Acedia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. And Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest and author of many books, including My Life with the Saints. Kathleen, Jim, Welcome to Interfaith Voices. Let me just start with my own experience here and tell you why I'm keenly interested in this issue and actually why I wrote a story for Christianity Today on it. For many years, I had a really great spiritual life. I felt very connected to God. I had a rich prayer life. And then it just kind of petered out. And I'd try another Bible study or I'd go to an inspirational talk. But I just felt bored with God and kind of spiritually flat. And I'm curious, has this ever happened to you? I'll step in and answer. Certainly it has. And I feel fortunate because the first time I was making my way back to church after many years away, I was in my mid-30s, and I wrote to this monk I knew as a writer. I wrote to him and told him about these sort of these wonderful religious experiences. And uh, I was so excited about it. And he said, yeah, that's all very well and good. I've had them myself. Don't expect them to last. And that was such good advice. And actually, it has helped me for years afterwards, just those words, relax, wait, good things will come don't expect it to last. Right, right. And so you have felt kind of, you've been wandering in the spiritual desert on occasion? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think just about everyone, everyone has. And fortunately, the Christian tradition gives us plenty of examples of saints who have undergone uh, certainly spiritual darkness and dryness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And before we get to the saints, I want to get to another saint. Uh, Jim, how about you? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, I not only in my own life, but I, I'm a spiritual director, which means I help people with their prayer and I listen to their prayer lives. And I've been doing that for about 20 years. I've been a Jesuit for about 30 years. And like Kathleen says, it's just part of the journey. And frankly, it doesn't even phase me anymore. <laughs> it's it's kind of like getting a cold. I mean, you get, I mean, you know, you get a cold and you say, all right, I have a cold. You know, people get colds from time to time and it'll pass, you know, seven to 10 days as the doctors say. And so I, you know, it doesn't really phase me. Hmm. Let me ask you, how would you define this? Is it a crisis of faith or malaise? Because let me just say, as I was a religion correspondent for NPR for a decade, and I have to say, I didn't meet many people who hit a spiritual dry patch and then just kind of abandoned their faith. What I saw was something more like a quiet despair. And I'm wondering if that rings true. Is it a true crisis of faith or is it a despair? What? How do you describe it? Well, let me enter in. I think... Um, it can become a crisis of faith if you allow that to happen, if you get all worked up about it and think, what can I do? And I think for myself, one of the great gifts I had was that I had a, a, an apprenticeship as a writer. And so a lot of that rhythm of wonderful inspiration, rich experience, and then dryness, uh, you know, going from writing every morning and doing some really good work to not even being able to write a postcard. In some ways, that's a natural part of the writing process. So I was kind of primed when that began happening in my spiritual life. It was like, oh, okay, because what happens with writing is a very good editor once said to me, whenever I hear from a writer that she's probably never going to write again, she's down to the bare bones, there's nothing left, I know that good things are going to come in the next few weeks. I think a similar thing happens in our spiritual lives. Kathleen, you talked about a 4th century monk who described acedia or the sense of malaise, as a noonday demon. Can you just tell me a little bit about this monk and, and what he meant by noonday demon? Well, this was um, Evagrius and a whole number of Egyptian monks in the 4th century 
they delineated what they called eight bad thoughts, and pride, anger, and acedia were the worst of them. And in their experience in the desert, acedia, this listlessness and hopelessness, would strike at noon because, of course, that's when the sun is at its peak. But they also began to really work out a psychology of how these bad thoughts work in us. And they realized that acedia also strikes at, at the noon of life. It also is kind of the midlife demon as well as the noonday demon. And I got a lot of inspiration from their insights. That's fascinating. But if I can just do a little riff here, because I'm keenly interested in this whole area of, of midlife and midfaith. In psychology, there's something called the U-curve of happiness, and it's it's pretty much universal. So in your 20s, you're happy and you're full of dreams, and you know maybe you'll launch a startup or you'll win, win an Oscar or something like that. You have these dreams. And then in your, in your 30s, reality is beginning to set in. And then by around age 45, you hit the bottom of that U-curve, and you know, you're often burdened with kids and maybe aging parents and a lot of responsibilities at work. And you, you realize, you know what, I'm not going to launch that startup, and I probably won't win an Oscar either. But then something really interesting happens in people's mid-50s. Most people become happier, and they realize that life is not perfect, but it's pretty good, and they begin kind of going up the U-curve of happiness. And I'm wondering if we see something similar in the spiritual life, a sort of you know, U-curve of spiritual happiness. I, I would say yes, because you know, in, in American culture and Western culture, a lot of it is you, know, you are what you do. And, you know, towards the end of your life, you're doing less and less, and there's a temptation to think you are less and less. But, you know, in the spiritual life, it's not about doing, it's about being. And I think to free yourself up from this uh, need to be, as my novice director used to say, a human doing instead of a human being is uh, really wonderful. That's great. Kathleen, you re- referenced this earlier, but how common is this? Should anyone who's kind of interested in spirituality expect to go through a rough patch? I believe so. I believe so. And I think one of the things for me, there's a wonderful poem by Denise Levertov. She talks about, you know, basically, we think God has abandoned us, but really, it's the other way around. That insight has really helped me a lot, that when I think God isn't there anymore, God isn't in my life, God has not abandoned me. I have abandoned God, and I need to sort of sit still and wait for that still small voice or whatever it is that's going to come uh, to help me out of that, of my alienation. Hmm. Yeah, and also, you know, looking for God in the exterior world as well. You know, the great contemporary example of darkness is uh, Mother Teresa, or St. Teresa of Calcutta now. And everyone knows that, uh, you know, she, for the last 50 years of her life, all the way till the end, experienced this profound interior darkness. And a friend of mine was uh, one of her spiritual directors. She had a few. And he was with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and she was in the midst of talking to him about how dry her spiritual life was. And this little boy came running up to her, threw his arms around her, and said, I love you, Mother Teresa. And my friend, the spiritual director, said, you know, that's God, too. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's a tendency, and I think uh, I'm interested to see if uh, Kathleen agrees with me, in the spiritual life and in the spiritual world to kind of privilege those interior movements over exterior experiences. And I, I remind people in spiritual direction that, you know, God works through relationships and individuals and music and nature and art and pop culture and our work and our families. And not to denigrate that and to say, just because something's not happening inside, I can't experience God. The great summary of Jesuit spirituality is finding God in all things, you know, and that doesn't mean just finding God in your prayer. So it's important in the spiritual life to look at your prayer, but also your daily life, your walking around life, too. Hmm. You yeah, know, Jim, you know, that, that, that's really counter to all American narcissism. We want it mm-hmm. to be about us and our interior life. And I think you're absolutely right. And often for me, 
the, the blessings that I receive during the day, it might come because I get a nice metaphor for a poem or I am praying in, in a meaningful way. But more often, it's because I encounter a little kid on the city bus who mm-hmm. wants to play peekaboo. Or one time this year, I had a long overnight plane ride that most people would probably think it was horrible to be seated with a young mother and a four-month-old baby. But it was an absolute blessing. This little girl named Ab- Abigail, I was able to hold her for a while while her mother went to the bathroom. And there's this little 12-pound human being on my chest and feeling my heartbeat and her heartbeat. And you just go, this is such a blessing on an airplane in the middle of the night. And you, you have to recognize that those moments are really powerful and they're God-given. For, mm-hmm. They're given to us for a reason. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. The saints of old, you know, other, other famous religious figures, did they go through a dark night of the soul? Uh, they did. Uh, you know, St. John of the Cross, uh, who wrote extensively about the dark night of the soul, uh, Paul of the Cross, uh, other saints that we know, St. Ignatius. None like Mother Teresa, though. I mean, none so extended. And, you know, you're right about it being so ironic that it's Mother Teresa because she's the person that everybody during her life would have looked at and said, oh, you know, lucky her. You know, she must have this amazing prayer life. But she had to rely on this early experience, this early very powerful mystical experience uh, to kind of carry her through. And in the end, with the help of her spiritual director, she came to see her, her darkness, her feelings of abandonment by God as a way of identifying with Jesus on the cross, you know, who cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the feelings of the poor, you know, who feel abandoned. And so it's an incredible story because she, you know, she has to rely on these earlier experiences to get her through. It's like kind of running on an empty tank or running on fumes. And uh, to me, it makes what she did all the more remarkable. As to kind of spiritual dryness, is it safe to assume that every major religion has this? Uh, Do they have different words for it? Oh, you know, I interviewed a couple of Buddhist monks, American Buddhist monks, because uh, when I told them I was writing about Asidia and I described it to them, one of them said, well, we just call it torpor. It's <laughs> one of the impediments to prayer. Is It's torpor. And the woman from an American monastery said that their monastery had been founded by an, an Anglican woman, so they just called it Asidia. But as monastics, they recognized it because here you have this very routine existence. You're trying to pray at the same time every day, eat at the same time every day. It can get very, very boring in a hurry. I kind of knew that as monastic people, they would know what this condition was. And I think pretty much all religions would have some idea that, yes, you know, you're not going to live at this intense level of prayer forever. You're going to have dry periods. Uh, Torpor was the one term I heard from the Buddhists. Hmm. But let me just ask you a question that could have preceded all these other, our, our whole conversation, which is, what's the point? I mean, why do we go through, why do people go through this spiritual dryness? What, what good is it? There's some very important things that happen when you're going through something that seems very out of control. You know, you want things to be better and they're not and you can't do anything about it. It basically reminds us who we are, that we are not in control. It reminds us of our human frailty and I think that's really, really important. We're not in control and being more humble doesn't hurt us at all. How do you get through this this dry period? What do you advise people, Jim? You know, what do you advise your directees to do? And Kathleen, what have you found that works to get you through this period? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. St. Ignatius had some pretty specific advice. Um, one was, believe it or not, pray more. <laughs> because sometimes, you know, people say they're dry and, you know, not all the time, but it's because they're not putting in the work. Do some penances, you know, do something ascetic, give something up. It's, it's a way to kind of jumpstart things. But most of the time I say try to vary things. You know, if you're praying the Psalms all the time, you're praying the Psalms for the last 25 years, pray something else, you know, do some spiritual reading, read the Gospels, go out in nature. And then also, you know, be patient, be hopeful. 
don't worry, it'll come back. And it's, there's nothing wrong with sitting in God's presence in silence. Something is happening. So one of those pieces of advice usually works. Kathleen, how about you? What, what have you found well, works? I think all of everything Jim said rings true for me. I find that walking and swimming, there's something about the rhythm of the body in motion that really triggers thoughts. Sometimes I will discover that I need to be thinking about something I wasn't even thinking about just in walking and letting my brain go. And when, even when I'm on the gym, if I'm on a treadmill or something, I, I never listen to music or distract myself. I want my mind to be free. And then just waiting. You know, in fact, it was a bishop once who asked me, what is it that poets do? And I said, we wait. And I think the same thing is true in the spiritual life. Learn a little patience, humility, and just wait because it will change. Life changes all the time. So you can't expect that you're going to be stuck in this with a slew of despond, as John Bunyan would say. You're not going to be stuck there forever. And in fact, if you know Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrim discovers he's had the key all along. He just hasn't used it. And that's a great metaphor for the spiritual life, I think. Thank you both very much. Kathleen Norris is author of Acedia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. And Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest and author of many books, including My Life with the Saints. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Barbara Bradley Haggerty in a story we first aired in 2016. Barbara is a former religion correspondent for NPR and author of Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. If you're interested in finding out more about our guests and their books, head over to this week's episode page on our website at www.interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcaster of your choice. And while you're there, you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, Richa Karmakar, Kevin McCarthy, and Umbreen Khan. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Auto Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>